Welcome to this week's episode of the Animals at Home podcast. If you're new here, my name is Dylan. This is the podcast that inspires others to push the limits of their reptile husbandry by promoting the importance of high-level creative care individualized for each reptile. So before we jump into the episode, I want to let you guys know of a really cool project that I actually am fortunate enough to have a small part in. Before I do that, let me quickly explain how the back end of podcasting works. So once I finish an episode and edit it and export it out of my editing software, I upload it to a website called Lipson. Lipson is essentially a podcast directory. Once it's uploaded to there, Lipson automatically sends it out to all the podcasting apps that you're familiar with. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is, that's where they end up or that's how they get there. Now, the main issue with podcasting apps, and I've said this before, is it does not, any any of the apps do not allow you to interact with the episode. That is one of the main reasons I post on YouTube as well. So you guys can comment back and forth, let me know what you think of the episode, give me your opinions on the topic that we discussed. But if it wasn't for YouTube, there'd be really no way to do that. Now, the app that we're talking about today is called Listen App. You can find it at listenapp.co. Unfortunately, right now it's only for iOS, but they are gonna have Android available in a month or two. This app is flipping podcasting on its head. This new concept called social podcasting. You can almost think of the Listen app as Instagram for podcasters. It allows me to have a profile, you to have a profile, you can follow your favorite shows on there, but then each episode essentially has its own little chat room so you can discuss the episode with the other listeners as well as myself. Each podcast has its own podcast hangout where all of you guys can come in and we can chat back and forth about whatever you want, things that you liked about the show, things that you didn't like. And the the chatting can either be voice memo back and forth or texting back and forth, but it'll give you more of an opportunity to interact with me as well as the other listeners. And I know there are a few of you that are so dedicated to the show, you're always listening, which I just can never show my appreciation enough. And I hope that this app will allow us to interact even more, discuss the episodes, you guys can tell me things you want to see in the future. And the really cool thing about this is I'm actually part of almost like a focus group. So I'm a part of a small group of other podcasters who are just starting to test out the app. And every Friday I've been on Zoom calls with the CEO of the of the app. So we get to talk with the person who's created the app and they're telling us all these different features that the app is going to have. And it is nothing like is currently on the market. And I think I'm, I'm just super excited to introduce you guys to it. I'll put it in the show notes as well. But again, listenapp.co, go check it out, download it. I would love to have you in my podcast hangout right now. It's just myself and my fiance who I forced to download it so I could see how it worked. But it's very simple to download. Download it, create your profile. Again, it's kind of tough to find in the app store. So make sure you go to listenapp.co. And I think we can start building a really cool community for the animals at home listeners. This is something that I've been wanting for a while now and there's been no way to do it. So this is that way in. So if you're someone that's dedicated and listening all the time, please come join me on there and then shoot me a message and we can start chatting. All right, on to the other things. Several of you have ordered t-shirts in the last few weeks, so thank you so much for doing that. If you do order a t-shirt at animalsathome.ca slash shop, $5 does automatically get donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. I'm getting ready to make a donation probably next week or so. I'm waiting for one more check from Google. I usually try to do those every few months or so. So once that check from Google comes in, I'll go make another donation to the charity, which always makes me extremely happy to be able to do that. And if you have recently ordered a shirt, I mentioned it last week, due to COVID, the printing is much slower than normal shipping is much slower than normal. So if you do order a shirt, you're just going to, have to be a little more patient than usual. It will eventually get to your home. It just might take a couple of weeks. Thank you to everyone who has headed to the Apple podcasting app and given the show a five-star rating. I deeply appreciate that. I am just so amazed at everybody who keeps showing up every single week. And uh, you know what? We've actually basically equaled the amount of downloads this year 
in 2020 than I had as a cumulative from the sh when the show started in the fall of 2018. So we've already surpassed the amount of downloads I had with a little bit of 2018 and all of 2019, just in the first five months or four and a half months of this year. So thank you so much. And I also want to thank our show sponsor, CustomReptileHabitats.com. There are affiliate links in both the YouTube description as well as the show notes. Definitely go check them out. This is really relevant to today's show because I'm trying to highlight the best brands and the best companies in the reptile trade. Of course, Custom Reptiles being one of them. I've talked to the owner several times, Paul. We have phone conversations all the time and he is someone that's out there trying to supply the reptile trade with good quality equipment. And that leads us into today's guest because today I'm speaking with Josh Willard of Josh's Frogs. Without a doubt, you've heard of Josh's Frogs, especially if you're in North America, one of the most reputable reptile brands out there. And I loved this conversation. Josh lets us in on so many different details that allow his company to function in the way it does. Their philosophy, connect with nature, is a philosophy that I hope every person that wants to work with reptiles starts to take on. This conversation is really for anybody who owns amphibians and reptiles. It was super interesting listening how Josh started the business out of his garage and how it's now transformed into this major facility, five floor facility, an amazing operation. But it's also, if you are somebody who is wanting to get into the reptile or amphibian business in any capacity, this conversation is full of the information you will need to have success. I think there's, that's the only way to put it. If you're looking for the keys to maintain a healthy business, which also perpetuates a healthy reptile trade, then this is a conversation for you. I'm not going to say anything else. Let's let Josh take it from here. I will talk to you guys after the episode. Enjoy. Well, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. You have created a very, very well-respected business in the reptile hobby, uh, reptile trade, and uh, which is definitely difficult to do. So I, I really want to get into that. We're going to talk about dart frogs as well. I'm really interested in the business side. But before we do that, on your website, it says you started Josh's Frogs out of your garage in 2004. But my guess is there was a passion for animals before that. So tell me about the early days. What got you into working with animals in the first place? Well, I uh, grew up in Jackson, Michigan. Um, Michigan is known for a lot of lakes, but the Jackson area is known for a lot of swamps. So my mom would uh, limit the amount of screen time that we got, to li limit the amount of uh, Nintendo we were playing, and she would kick us outside and say, hey, go play, play outside. And so we spent a lot of time in the swamp, uh, spring, summer, and fall, uh, catching uh, leopard frogs and bullfrogs and catching garter snakes. Um, and then we would catch the occasional turtle, um, a few times caught some snappers and that kind of stuff. And my mom's rule always was you, we could take anything we wanted back home for one night and then we had to return it the next morning. And so, um, spent a lot of time just getting muddy in the swamp, um, playing with that kind of stuff. Um, and then as I became a little bit older, teenage years, um, I got really got connected with the local pet store there in town. Um, and so I kept uh, some different newts. Uh, I kept uh, some snakes, ball pythons, and uh, boa constrictors at that time. Um, and then I left for uh, college, and I got rid of everything. So uh, I spent four years at college with uh, with no animals besides the fish tank that we were allowed to have there in the, the, the dorm. So that's really where the love for animals began. My mom, um, in essence, forced it upon us, made us go outside and, and hang out um, in the swamps, catching stuff. And and uh, learning a little bit about that um, as we would catch it and try to keep it for, for a night. Honestly, that is the way to grow up for sure. I, I kind of have a similar story in terms of growing up in the country and getting outside. And I think that's a great rule. You get to keep it for one day. You can learn about it, but you can't kill it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. That's yeah, awesome. 
I think her rule is more along the lines of she didn't want us to be collecting a bunch of stuff. We just bring home something every single day and add to the collection. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it worked out worked out nice to keep it for one night and return it back the next morning and catch something else. I have this memory of finding a toad outside and putting it into this aquarium. And I thought it was a great aquarium. It looked great. It seemed like it should be happy in there. And then the next morning I hear my mom scream and there's this toad in one of the house plants. I'm like, <laughs> man, that thing really made its way across the whole house. That's amazing. <laughs> So what were you doing in college and did, did, were you studying animals or anything like that or was it totally different? It was totally, totally different. So um, I went to school. I started uh, pre-med. Um, I was planning on being um, a doctor at the time and I started working with um, some adolescents uh, there in the uh, town that the college was um, and really got a passion for working with young people. Um, and so I changed my major actually to youth ministry. So I um, right after college, I ended up uh, working um, with uh, teenagers for about seven years. So, yep. so, And then dart frogs came into the equation at some point. How did that happen? So I got out of college um, and didn't have any money and got married shortly after that. And I kind of got the hankering for, for keeping some exotic animals again. And the wife at that time, she, my wife grew up in Africa, uh, not a big fan of the snakes there. And so when I posted, hey, you know, like, I'd like to get a few snakes, she was like, no, I can't, I can't do snakes. I've, I've done that part of my life already. I don't want to live with snakes anymore. Um, so I did some research and I said, hey, you know, I, I kept a lot of frogs as a, as a young child. I'd love to get back into that and did some research and uh, learned a little bit about poison dart frogs and learned a little bit about how you need a bunch of other stuff uh, in order to keep um, poison dart frogs. So um, I hatched a plan with my wife. I said, Hey, you know, there's these cups that you use for fruit flies. Um, the factory is actually just down the road that makes them. What if I just got a pallet of those cups and I sold the extra cups and I used the money that I made from selling those cups to get a tank of frogs on the, uh, um, in the living room. And so that's how it all started. One pallet of cups that I ended up selling the excess off, um, was able to finance the one tank of frogs that I had in our living room. That's awesome. So that planted the seed of uh, of the business mind of the frog world. Yeah. And even, I mean, at that time, there was no plan of, of it becoming a business or anything like that. It was just a, a kind of a side hustle so that I could keep a, a, a tank of frogs on our, in our living room. And then even after that, it, it, you know, I, I saw how easy that was. And I said, hey, maybe I can get another tank of frogs. Let me bring in something else in access and sell off the extra so that I can get my uh, tank of frogs. So that's the way I did it for uh, quite a few years, about three years. That way. And so it kind of started as basically just you trying to find a way to financially support the hobby without having to use your own money. You could buy something and, and sell it off. Interesting. So then at what point did it transition into a, more of a business? Like, uh, did you start breeding or sort of the garage setup? What was, how did that get there? So um, it was just a side hobby where I was, you know, buying extra stuff, selling off the excess and, and growing my own collection just because I enjoyed it. And I was finishing up um, the current, the job that I was currently at, and I was getting my master's in counseling and I was going to do it at a youth, uh, detention home. And about a week before that, uh, internship, uh, started, I already resigned from my current position. And a week before that internship was about to start, the uh, detention center called me and said, Hey, we lost our funding. We can't do this. Uh, we can't bring on any interns at this time. So I called my program and I'm like, Hey, I need to find a new internship spot. And they said, yeah, we can do that next year. I said, well, I don't have a job right now. What am I supposed to do? Um, and they said, sorry, you know, due to scheduling, we, we can't do it until the next year. And so 
Um, I had to, I didn't have a job at that time. And so um, I said, I talked with my wife and I said, hey, you know, rather than find a job for the year, like, I wonder if I could turn this hobby um, into something that makes a little bit of extra money so that I can help uh, my wife support our family. And so I did that uh, for that year. And then I got the internship. I did that for eight months on top of that. And at the end of that uh, internship, they offered me a job there at the counseling facility. And I talked with my wife and I said, hey, you know, this past little over a year has been so exciting. And I'd love to watch how Josh's Rock is growing. I'd love to like take a crack at just making this my full time job. And so that was in 2008. Um, made that decision that I was going to go full force um, into Josh's Frogs and move the business outside of our house to a facility here in Owasso. So that's how that's how it started. It's amazing how many small businesses start with a job disappearing. You know, you're like, I'm going to work tomorrow, and then the job disappears. I imagine COVID might be the release of you know many new small businesses because people just need something to do. That's pretty exactly. incredible. Yep, yep, yep. There, I don't remember the exact stats, but there's like a lot of businesses that were started in this type of environment. I think Starbucks is one of them. I mean, there's there's all these different businesses that are started when when things get a little bit crazy. It, it forces people to be creative and, and people to to go full force into something instead of uh, being safe. And so, in those early days, when you were still in the garage or still at home, what did the business look like, and what what sort of were you doing? Was it mostly breeding frogs, or was it kind of everything? Um. Well, in the poison dart frog hobby, there's a lot um, of supplies and accessories along that. So you have not only the animals, but you have the whole setup. So it's all naturalistic. Uh, so you have live plants and um, you have what's commonly referred to now as bioactive soil. But at, at that time, we just called it ABG. Um, and you have all these other ancillary products for keeping the tadpoles and stuff like that. So uh, we did a lot of frog stuff um, at the very beginning. So um, I was breeding frogs, breeding the insects, um, and selling all the supplies you needed to care for the frogs and breed the frogs and take care of the tadpoles, which ends up being quite a bit of uh, products. And just all focused right there on uh, poison dart frogs. Um, we didn't get out, we didn't branch out of poison dart frogs until 2009. So at that time, were you still completely on your own operating everything, or did you have did you have any employees that were helping you out? Um, in 2007, I hired my uh, first few employees. So um, Zach, who heads up our animal uh, department, um, he started working at uh, that time doing shows. And then I had a few other people that were helping uh, with making some of the, the stuff as well. It was just more than I could do in, a, in, a, in a, any given week. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so in terms of the expansion as you moved into a, a separate facility, right now you, you have quite a large facility. Uh, right now, we have 66,000 square feet at the facility we are at, and then um, we um, have a greenhouse that's uh, about 13,500 feet. So, wow, that, that, that is really amazing. It's just crazy to think that you started in a garage and now it's there. In terms of the setup, you have, for, I mean, people have probably seen Josh's Fogs, although we do have lots of listeners that are outside of the country, outside of North America. But can you just give a little rough explanation of what the facility is like, kind of what, what you guys are doing there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first, it's a five-story uh, building. It used to be a casket factory. So they, um, I guess, three or four presidents, um, United States uh, presidents are, are buried in caskets that were made in this building. So it's a really old building with a lot of history. Um, first floor is all shipping. So any of the uh, dry goods that we're shipping out, those are all uh, mainly stored on that uh, first floor. Second floor um, holds a bunch of offices for customer service, 
uh, marketing um, and some of the animal team, and then um, our reptile breeding uh, rooms and our frog breeding rooms are all on this floor, and I'm currently on second floor as well too. Um, then um, on the one corner of second floor is our baking department. That's the department that makes all of our uh, substrates and all of our feeds and that kind of stuff. That's on uh, second floor as well. Uh, third floor is all plants. So we grow the uh, plants at the greenhouse that's off site. And then those plants are shipped here on a weekly basis. And third floor is where um, we care for those uh, plants and then do the actual packaging and shipping out of those plants. Uh, fourth floor um, in our building is all insects. So we breed uh, quite a few different isopods and springtails and and um, and our uh, pet bugs uh, division. So scorpions, uh, tarantulas, that kind of stuff. That's all on fourth floor. Um, fifth floor has our uh, media room that's just getting finished. So that's where we do our videos and that kind of stuff. And then uh, the rest of fifth floor is just excess storage. So a lot of the tanks and bulk stuff goes up to, to fifth floor. So that's, and then, um, then we have the greenhouse that's outside. So when you started, I meant, could you ever have imagined what it has turned into today? So like, I mean, when I first started, like it was not planning on being a business. It was planning on like, hey, I can keep a lot of frogs if I just sell off the excess stuff. <laughs> um, even when I first decided like, hey, I'll make a, a career of this, like my aspirations were pretty small. Um, I was not thinking that this would become, it was definitely not as large as it has become already. Um, you know, we just were enjoying what we were doing. Um, we felt like we were helping people connect with nature. And we really saw that as like, Hey, that's a really small thing. It's not a very big uh, mission to do. And so we're going to do that in the capacity that we can do it. And it wasn't until probably 2013, 2014 that we really realized that, oh my gosh, this could be something that's really large and this could be something that we could have a big impact and connect a lot of people with nature. And so that's really when our mind shifts kind of shifted and said, okay, this can be really large if we, if we want it to be. And you also have this incredible team, it seems like. You've created all these jobs surrounding this idea, which is really amazing. Your team, I'm sure they are amazing. Yeah, yeah. They, it's, um, it's crazy. We, it wasn't until we got kind of lucky at the very beginning with finding really good people that were local. Um, you know, like uh, Zach, who heads up our animal department, just happened to move from Texas to the Michigan area, which um, was a godsend. Um, some very really good local hires that we made uh, from the beginning. And then, you know, as I talked about, like when our mindset, mind shifts kind of shifted um, around that 2013, 2014 time period, we started realizing like, oh my gosh, you know, we're creating something that people would leave other states and want to come up, be a part of and, and help us grow. And so um, we've been able to do that as well too. Like I, I'm really shocked at um, the, the people that we've been able to, um, to hire and, and what they've been able to accomplish here. I mean, even in the last few months, I've talked a lot about with our team, like, you know, if you, you go to call customer service at, at any other uh, place, like you've had to the last couple of months, you're talking about ginormous wait times and we're not experiencing that. We've had really good customer service agents. When it comes to shipping, you know, like uh, Amazon's got rid of Prime, it's now eight, nine, 10 days. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to keep really up to date with that, uh, even though our volumes have, have shifted. So really, really proud of our team and what they've accomplished. There's a lot of great people that really care a lot about uh, what we're trying to do. And um, that's shown in the way that, in which we've grown. So 
Yeah, it seems like you just have people who are aligned with the philosophy of the company and it just becomes a simple to get them to work because they are happy to do what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, I think um, we have quite a few people that um, would be connected with like the animal part of what we do that are really passionate about that. Like the, the fact that we aren't bringing in wild caught animals and then reselling them that are, are really latch on to the vision that, hey, we're, t- we're taking animals we're going to breed them and then we're going to allow people to connect with nature through these captive bred um, animals. And then we're going to use some of the funds that we, um, that we procure from selling these animals to help support conservation um, efforts and do grants with places. There are a lot of people that connect and resonate with that. And then there's also the other side of that where we're, we're very much a family organization that really cares about our employees and cares about each other. Um, we do um, open finances with our team, so everybody knows how much money is coming in and how much money is leaving. And they really like that kind of environment where we're investing in each other and helping each other grow uh, something that's having a big impact in the lives of people. And so it's really cool. Like we have some people that were would have never thought that they'd ever work at at a place selling reptiles and amphibians, and then we've had people that um, you know never really dreamed that that something like this could even exist in in, in our world. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting idea, keeping the books open to everybody because it, everybody has become accountable and sometimes management can be sneaky, right? You work for a company and you're like, I feel like the bosses don't know what we're going through and it sort of lays everything on the table, right? And everybody's there together. Yeah, somebody um, recommended that very early on and it just made sense with me to, and it's one of our core values is integrity and we really feel like integrity um, means not just saying the right thing when somebody asks you, but just being open and transparent with uh, people. So we've we've always, from the very beginning, um, had an open book policy where where people can see this is how much money is coming in, this is how much money is going out, and we base our bonuses on that um, and base our pay on that. And so um, it's always served us well. Like I feel like transparency uh, builds trust, and that people trust what we're we're doing and and how we're growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Tell me about the decision to not be open to the public, because that's also something that's, I, I think, unique to you guys. There, there are maybe other companies that do that, but more than not, typically people are open. So how did that decision come about? Um, we are open for tours. We do. Mm-hmm. We try to schedule tours on Friday, but we can schedule them um, outside of that. Uh, tours usually take just over an hour, so um, they kind of take a lot of, of time. Um, we... I. There's twofold reasons for why we don't run a retail store. Um, one is it's not really our focus um, when in completing our mission. So like our mission is to connect people with nature and we feel like the best way to do that is to focus on a more national or even international uh, mindset instead of a local mindset. So it's kind of a focus area for us. And then second on top of that is we have some really, really cool local pet stores in the area that are doing a really good job of connecting people with nature. And so we just didn't feel like there was a reason for us to compete with them. And so um, there's a Proust Pets here in Lansing, Michigan. It's probably one of the one of the top pet stores in the, uh, the country as far as the experience that you get in walking into that environment. You really feel like it's, it's not a sterile environment. It's not where, um, you know, a bunch of cages and squared off. It's got a river that runs through the the place. It's a really, really cool um, environment. And, and we said, hey, they're doing a great job of that. Let's let's focus on some other areas that we can help people connect with nature. And so we haven't done a retail store. And I don't think we plan on doing one any anytime in the near future. Yeah. Why change what works? And I, yeah. I think a big part of your success is that really integral philosophy that you have. And I think that maybe the two biggest pillars that is, or seemingly two biggest pillars are one, the wild caught 
uh, not you know captive breeding and education and I, I want to talk about the wild caught we'll save that for a second the education you guys do a really good job of, of creating content for people buying the animals which is also another thing in the reptile trade that we don't often see you go to the expo you take your animal home and you're like what species is this but yeah, you guys yeah. have this really like great library of content yep yep we um very early on um we were sitting around um talking about like the future of josh's frogs and we were saying like, hey, if we really focus on education, like we could be in a position where we're supporting every other reptile or amphibian place and selling it. We could be like kind of the help center for them. And, you know, like, can we even afford to do that? And we, one of the things that we did is we, we sent an email um, to one of the largest uh, pet stores in the, the world. And we said, hey, um, you know, I bought a, a six inch leopard gecko. What size cricket should I feed this uh, gecko? And, we got a response back about a day and a half later um, saying, hey, I'm not really sure what size crickets you should be feeding this leopard gecko, but here's some care sheets um, on the interwebs that can maybe help you out. And we just took a look at that and we're like, like we're not helping people connect with nature if we take a philosophy of, of not engaging and not helping people. Um, and you know, if we really want to accomplish our goal of helping people with connect with nature, like we have to figure out a way in which uh, to make this customer service um, aspect where we're, we're helping people get the right stuff to take care of their animals. We have to make that a priority or we're not going to accomplish our mission. And so we've got to figure out a way to make that part of our uh, business. And so we made a decision um, that we were going to focus on that. And then on top of that, we decided, hey, you know, let's try to get as much information into the hands of people before they're um, shooting us an email or giving us a phone call. And so um, we've made that uh, part of our core values from the very beginning that we're going to pump out a lot of content. And we realize that not all of that content is going to result in sales from Josh's frogs, but they're going to help people take care of their animals in a way that, that they can keep those animals for a long, long time. And in the long run, that'll help us out if we can help grow this hobby and that'll help us. Uh, you know, we, I always say, like, we don't really have competition in the industry. We're all really trying to focus on how do we grow our hobby. Right now, 3% of the U.S. population keeps exotic animals. I'd rather not fight with the other stores uh, around that 3%. Let's try to grow that to 5 or 6%. And then there's, there's tons of opportunities for us to all grow in that uh, regard. So we've always focused on the educational aspect because it's part of our core values, but also it's, it's part of our our role in helping our, us grow our hobby. And that's going to help us in the long term. Yeah, no, it's so true. And I, I mean, so many times I've stumbled across your guys' articles when I'm writing something or, you know, researching something. It's you typically you guys are in the first two or three links on Google and it's always really helpful and the content is great. So that's a huge thing. And I think it is important to, to understand that we, that's a great comment is that it's not a competition. The as we support each other, the industry will grow and we want it to grow with healthy seeds and not these little sneaky, you know, backdoor, you know, dealings. And those are the things that get kind of plucked by the animal rights people that don't want us to keep it. And I think connecting with nature is the the crux of the importance of the hobby. Like that is the main goal here. And I think some points the trade sort of slips away from that and, and we lose contact with that and it becomes more of a it's a collection or it's hard to say. Yep. Yeah. I think it's a part of a mindset too. Like some people don't see um, the world as abundant. They don't, they don't feel like there's tons of opportunity that there might be not as much opportunity as there really is. And when I just think of like that only 3% of the U S population keeps exotic animals, I'm like, 
there's tons of opportunity for us to all grow. There's tons and tons. I mean, that could easily be 50%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And especially as be- the world becomes more urbanized, I think that's the appeal to connecting with nature. You Even if you live in a city of, you know, 10 million people, you can go into your living room and have a section of your living room that looks like the Amazon rainforest. And it sounds like the Amazon rainforest and smells like it. And it can be a meditative and, and a really peaceful process of putting it together and just having it there with you. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've been, um, I guess, mind shifts have kind of uh, changed when now that we're seeing some of these disasters. So we had the, the fires in the Amazon and the fires in Australia that kind of pushed nature to the forefront of our our mind um with the people that are living in these uh urban jungles as i like to call them that we kind of forget that 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 kind of our um ecosystems exist in our world and i feel like just what you're saying like putting a little piece of that in somebody's uh room reminds them that there's something besides cement and cars and smog and cell phones and it reminds us that there's something else besides uh what we're experiencing in our day-to-day life and so that impacts how we how we use our finances um, when we're talking about like how we're going to support uh, conservation, um, but that also affects how we utilize uh, stuff. Like, are we going to keep using as much plastic as we're we're using? Are we going to make decisions based on what ingredients are in uh, food? But when you talk about like palm oil and that kind of stuff, so I think having a box uh, in your room of that rainforest reminds you that there's a world outside of what you're. Um, used to and the, the decisions that you make impact that um, world. And so I think it keeps it in the forefront. And so I think that's a, um, one of the big pushes for us to connect with nature is just so that the people we were reminding people uh, to take care of it, but also uh, reminding people that the, the, the cell phone and the pace of life of that, that world is not the pace uh, of this world. Yeah, no, so true. And in terms of the wild caught issue, is that something that from day one, you were very much wanting to make sure that things were captive bred and sort of perpetuating the avoidance of wild caught? Well, our uh, our mission started off with connecting people with nature and everybody else was doing the wild caught thing. And so it's, it's how we started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, as we kind of evolved, we were like, hey, you know, these wild caught animals don't do as well as captive bred animals. And so if our stance is to connect people with nature easily and make it easy for them, the easiest way for people to take care of animals is to start out with a healthy captive bred um, animal that's not going to have some of the issues that some of these stressed out wild caught animals uh, would have. And so we took the stance pretty early in our, in our company that, hey, that's the direction we were going to head because that, that fulfills um, or point us in the right direction of the, the mission that we're trying to accomplish. It's, um, you know, and as, as we've grown as a company, um, you know, we've become more and more um, uh, sure of that, that direction uh, for us as a hobby moving forward, that we've got to figure out ways in which um, we can get wild caught animals into the right hands of the right people so that we can maintain those species for the, the long term instead of uh, bringing in tons and tons of animals and distributing them. Uh, to anybody and everybody in our uh, country. We've got to do a better job of managing that process so that uh, the animals are making it to the right uh, people to to continue, so we can continue to have those animals uh, for the long term. Yeah, there's still for sure a a purpose for bringing in a select few of wild caught animals that you can you're right like the advanced keepers that are working with those species to perpetuate but they don't need to be going to the pet smarts of the world uh, at 50 cents a piece to to be sold to the guy who just decided today that he wants a frog 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think like some of the species that are easily collected are not usually the easiest captives. And so sometimes some of the hardest to collect animals end up being the easiest uh, captives. And so sometimes we're, as a hobby, we're, um, you know, we're growing in an area that's just because that frog happens to be one of the easier to catch uh, frogs in the wild. And, and that shouldn't be um, the, the litmus test for what we're keeping in the hobby. We want to keep things that people can keep around for a long time that are easy to keep. Um, so they can connect with nature for a long time. Do you see the wild caught issue as as still a pretty major issue, or is it starting to slowly contract? Um, I think it's contracting. Um, I, I'm seeing. I guess. I guess I would say like I'm seeing probably the same amount of wild caught animals at some of the shows, but I think the captive bred side has grown so much that it doesn't seem like that's such a big part of our mm. um, hobby anymore, and so. Um, I'm excited about that uh, transition. Um, you know, when I talk with some of the places that are selling a lot of wild caught, they'll even say it's a supply issue. So they can't get enough captive bred animals to supply um, what they need to do. And so I think that gives um, the, all, those of us that are breeding animals kind of a, a ambition to like, hey, let's let's breed enough animals that we don't have to bring in as many of these wild caught animals in the future. And so I, I, I don't think that there's, I haven't run across anybody that's like, hey, screw captive bread. I'd rather just do all well. I've never <laughs> run into that person before. Um, you know, when I talk to some of the places that are selling a lot of wild caught, it, they, they, they feel that it's out of necessity. They can't get enough of uh, captive bred animals. And so I think that's a, a call to, uh, I want to call it a call to arms, a call to action for all of us that, hey, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for us to captive breed a lot of animals. Um, in order to limit the amount of uh, wild caught that need to be brought in. Yeah, ex- yeah, that's a great point. It's a big world. Like we said earlier, it's not a competition. If you can get in into the into the captive breeding game, that would be a huge. For people who are maybe new to the reptile industry, what are some if they want to stay away from wild caught animals? What are some tips to make sure that or that you can provide to someone who's getting in and to make sure they don't accidentally pick up something that's wild caught? The biggest thing I could recommend, um, unfortunately, is, is trying to go away from some of the bigger box stores um, and trying to find some of the local people in your area to get connected with. Um, not only because they'll be actually captive breeding the animals themselves, but also because I think a big part of our hobby um, is mentorship and, and communicating with people on a regular basis. And so if you can hook up with somebody um, that's local, um, whether that's through a herp society or through one of the reptile shows that like that gives you an opportunity for you to be able to ask the person like, Hey, you know, this, my, you know, the snake isn't shedding very well. What are some things that I can do to, to take a look at that? Or, Hey, you know, it stopped eating for a little bit. Should I be concerned about that? Or is this normal? Like those kind of questions, um, you know, you're going to have a hard time doing that at some place that's doing a mass amount of animals. And those, those questions, um, need to be answered so that you can be successful. And so I'd highly recommend either a herp society or local herp shows getting involved in something like that to, to make sure that you're getting not only captive bred animals, but that you're getting the support you need to be successful long-term. Yeah, that, that is a huge point. That I, I'm a firm believer that the individual keepers or the individual businesses that are owned privately are the lifeblood of the industry. And these are the people that have the knowledge and corporations just can't supply the information properly and they also can't move with the market properly and in a lot of ways they are the ammunition that animal rights people gravitate towards when they're trying to you know create legislation that's against the exotic animals right they point to pet smart or pet whatever it is for all these you know chinese water dragons that are coming in and by the thousands so if we can do the best to support 
people who are like us, hobbyists at heart, that's yep. where the strength of the hobby comes from. Yeah, and I think another part of our um, hobby and, and something that we haven't done a good job at, at ho- as a hobbyist is finding ways to support some of these uh, big box stores, whether that's with information or whether that's with volunteering to do a night. Like, hey, if you know a lot about Water Dragon, why don't you volunteer at your local big box store to, to do a presentation for a half hour? I'm sure that they would love to do that. And we, we need to come alongside some of those uh, big box stores and, and do our part to help uh, that not have as big an impact on our hobby as it, as it sometimes does. Yeah, that's true. Maybe there's more of a supportive role than criticizing role that we can play. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity for us to do that. Interesting. In terms of the amount of animals that you guys are breeding uh, sort of on an annual basis, do you have a number in your head? <laughs> is it is it just so huge? <laughs> uh, we um, we would produce probably in the tens of thousands of animals. Um, wow. In a, in a year. Yep. Yep. And and still we're not able to supply our retail demand, let alone some of the wholesale demand. So um, the animal breeding, we're still trying to grow that uh, to, to support. Like I said earlier, like there's still um, this huge uh, need for more captive bred animals in our hobby um, to limit some of the wild caught stuff that's coming. Right. Yeah, that is incredible. Wow, that's a big number. And then you, obviously frogs are where it started, but then you did add some gecko species and some lizards as well. And did you say that was 2013 or 14 or? No, um, we did. Well, we did a couple of um, other frog species um, around that uh, time, the early 2010. So 11, 12, we added some frog species. Um, we did some morning geckos um, for a long time, but really the the big jump into reptiles happened two years ago um so now we do a lot of um a lot of day geckos uh clamori morning geckos crested geckos leopard geckos um we do chinese cave geckos we do a bunch of viper geckos we do a bunch of uh geckos now um that was something new that we started about two years ago um everybody told us that hey when you're doing frogs um that's the hard that's the hard part of the hobby the reptiles are so much easier mm-hmm because you don't have the tadpole stage that you need to, to worry about. So um, we've really grown that side of our business and, and really see a lot of opportunity for that side to uh, grow into the future. Some of those, a lot of those um, species have a lot of crossover with uh, the poison dart frog hobby and, and looking at doing things naturalistically um, with live plants and whatnot. Um, and there's been a lot of crossover in that. So that, that area of our business has grown a lot. And then in the last year with our pet bugs has grown as well too, the tarantula scorpion. Um, type uh, bugs as well too. Mm. Yeah, I guess if you start with dart frogs and you have that ideal of you know a naturalistic enclosure and enriching enclosure, adding that into the lizard side or the gecko side is much easier because the dart frogs are a lot more sensitive. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It so was a natural transition for us. A few months or maybe a month or two ago, I had Troy Goldberg on. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he has. Uh, yeah. So I, the question I posed to him is I was curious because the dart frog hobby, and I'll ask the same question to you. The dart frog hobby seems like it's always been really high level care, sort of focused on enrichment, live plants, you know, bioactive, which I know is kind of a funny term that the, the dart frog community sort of laughs at because he has been doing it for so long. And, <laughs> and I wonder, is that a a virtue of the fact that the frogs need it because they're sensitive or is it more of a cultural thing that was in the dart frog community that is just can, can sort of perpetuated over time or both? Yeah, that, yeah I definitely think it was uh, uh, both. One is like they dart frogs were, you know, you'll go back to the eighties, even into the nineties, they were considered very, very hard to keep um, because we were trying to keep them sterile. 
um, where we just zero, zero to very little success um, in that time period, keeping them uh, that way. And so it, it grew out of necessity that we said, hey, you know, let's take a look at, at doing the care a little bit differently than what the reptile amphibian hobby was uh, currently doing. But then I think also another aspect of it for, for whatever reason, and there's probably a bunch of different reasons, it really, the hobby really started academically. So there's a lot, quite a few master's level, doctorate level people that were kind of the champions of the, the dart frog hobby. And so, um, you know, they had a lot of resources, uh, whether that was the ability to take trips uh, to their native habitats, uh, the ability to, um, you know, to, to look at it a little bit differently than the, the hobby looks at it. So I think both of those played into the, the aspect of, of making um, the dart frog hobby more complex, but then on the same side, um, simplifying it for, for people moving forward. Yeah, because I, I always use dart frogs as an example because for, for whatever reason, when you look anytime you Google a dart frog enclosure, it's going to be this big, beautiful rainforest. And, and especially in North America, reptiles really took another angle, especially in the snake side, took another angle for a while. And I think we're starting to get out of that now. But it's almost like we need more, on the reptile side, more cultural norms to say, you know, if you're getting an animal, part of that naturalistic enclosure is part of the package. It's not just the animal. Yep. Yeah. I think that the enrichment side of it is something that we haven't thought a lot about as a hobby. And I know AZA is starting to think more and more about that. Like how do we provide enrichment for snakes and lizards and that kind of stuff. And, and we're trying to help uh, zoos navigate that and, and uh, realize that a bioactive enclosure is a way in which you provide that kind of enrichment uh, for those types of animals. And so I think like, I think the future is quite a big shift uh, in that area. And I think that we're going to find that the animals are a lot easier to care for, um, are going to live longer, um, and uh, we're going to be more successful with them when we start keeping them in, in some type of, uh, whether the term is bioactive or naturalistic, but, but but taking a less sterile approach to keeping animals. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so true. And it's more fun for the keeper as well. And, and, and I made a video last week just talking about lifespans, for example, and it seems like most lifespans on your typical care guide are, you know, we, uh, from the sterile sort of era. And these animals live or have the potential to live incredibly long times, especially some species. And it's almost like we don't know how long some of these animals can live for. If we start yeah. keeping them in these more natural ways, we're going to start exposing that. Yep. And I think, um, you know, I think it goes back to, to what we were talking about earlier, where getting connected with your local um, herb society or local show, you can see how these breeders are setting up uh, the animals and they're having a lot of success. And, you know, for them to show you like, hey, here's this lizard, it's been, you know, I've had it for 14, 15 years. And for you to be able to think through like, okay, this is how I need to set it up if I want to keep it for that long and want to give it that kind of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of, I think one of the easiest ways anybody can add enrichment if they don't have any really yet is adding just a simple live plant, even a little pot, potted plant. Do you have any recommendations for easy plants? Because typically animal people kill plants really fast. <laughs> what are some yeah. easy plant species that someone can add to really any species? Um, it really depends on the enclosure and the parameters that you're going to do in that uh, enclosure. So one of the, the plants that we always recommend is pothos because it 
It can take a very wide uh, variety of conditions. Uh, but even in some of your more desert type environments, it's just going to be too dry for those uh, plants moving forward. So one of the big things that we um, like to recommend is that people get big, sturdy pots, especially for animals that are going to be uh, you know, moving around and they're more heavier bodies, so they're not tipping over, making sure that you're starting with something that's a little bit heavier, ceramic uh, type pots when you're uh, putting uh, plants um, in the enclosure. Um, to add, whether that's aesthetics or enrichment for the animal or helping with the uh, humidity uh, or um, environmental control, shade, that kind of stuff um, as well too. So highly recommend uh, pothos, uh, but with the caveat that if you're doing something much drier, the pothos just isn't going to work out very well for you. Yeah, if you have a tropical setup and you kill a pothos, I would be really amazed. Yeah, we've, uh, it, they, we always tell people, like, if you can read letters on a page, that's enough light for pothos, and <laughs> you can grow pothos in your aquarium or in a pot, so, like, it, 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 it can survive almost anything. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly robust. So, if someone was looking at maybe starting a small breeding operation or a small business, because you have this, you've developed this incredibly reputable brand, what, I mean, I think after listening to this conversation, they'll probably be able to pick out a lot of things, but do you have any any things you wish you knew or pieces of advice that you would give someone who's starting to try to, you know, have that reputable status? Yeah. yeah. Um, I highly recommend first off what we already talked about, starting off with a mindset of like, Hey, I want to help grow this hobby. Um, don't be thinking like, Hey, you know, Hey, I think that, that I can sell lizards for $1 cheaper than the guy who was selling them before. Like I just, you're not going to be successful uh, doing it that way. Um, the way in which you find, um, your your place in the, the hobby and just trying to figure out like what where is the big hole in the hobby? What are people not what are the species that people are not working with or, or what are the species that people are not having as much success with and figuring out like how you can find your place in that hobby is going to be the best way to move forward. And um, there are tons of those opportunities. There's tons of different animals that people just have, have lost uh, whatever maybe a breeder decided to move on and stop working with the species or or whether somebody passed away or something like that. There's tons of these species that, that there's demand for, but no one's producing. And so finding your niche in that uh, type of environment, I think is um, a way to move forward. And then also on top of that, I'd, I'd say, you know, don't think of the other people that are in the hobby as competition or as enemies, um, but figure out ways in which you can work together with them. So, um, you know, we work with a lot of different um, organizations in the reptile uh, amphibian hobby. Um, and we found much success by working together um, with those uh, players. And so I, th I would say, hey, you know, try to find your niche, but then also try to find how you can partner with other um, other places. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. So figure out a way that you can actually serve the industry rather than mm -hmm. serve yourself. And it, it will become evident on what you should do. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's tons and tons of opportunity. In terms of the conservation uh, organizations that you guys support, what, what type of organizations are you guys uh, helping financially? Um, we help, we do a few different things. So like right now we're in the process of our um, amphibian grants. So we took uh, a portion of profits from the uh, dart frog uh, division last year. And then we are taking um, grant proposals right now. And then we're going to pass that out to our customers and have them vote on uh, which organizations will uh, support that way. So we do that. Um, we also do a portion of sales for certain species back to conservation um, efforts that are um, in the native uh, environment for those frogs. So a good example of that would be with our Mantella purchases. So we support uh, conservation efforts in Madagascar with a portion of proceeds uh, from those animals uh, go right to conservation in those areas. And then um, 
we support a few other organizations by just um, giving either sponsoring or, or whatnot with uh, those or, or whether we're donating supplies um, in those areas. But um, that's an area that we're continuing to grow and, um, you know, want to be able to, to tie like directly um, some, some of our breeding um, success with uh, conservation efforts. Have you ever taken a trip to any of these places where these frogs are endemic or done any rainforest tours? I have never been to um, South America. I've been in Central America, um, Honduras. I've been um, there in those locations, but I've never made it down to South America. Well, the, even Central America has some pretty fantastic rainforests. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where I was at in Honduras, I, I saw quite a bit of uh, really cool stuff. Yeah, it's it's if if you've never been to a rainforest, it's a definitely a bucket list thing. Once you go there, it just it opens your mind to the the life that's in those parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. Do you keep anything at home, or do you just in terms of your animals? Or is everything at uh, at work? Um, I don't keep very many animals at home anymore. Um, my kids are just now getting to the age where they enjoy uh, taking care of uh, animals. So we have a few tortoises at home, uh, a couple of frogs and uh, some leopard geckos and then a uh, fish tank so not a ton of animals at home yeah you of course if you're producing tens of thousands of animals a year <laughs> you don't really have the itch for it <laughs> i think my kids uh, enjoy getting to play with the animals here and not having to take care of them so. yeah that's a great deal that's not a bad deal at all <laughs> in terms of your overall sort of vision of the reptile trade are you optimistic about it I am very optimistic about it. Like, I feel like they're, um, for every kind of shady character in the reptile industry, I really believe that there are 10 to 20 just amazing people with a breadth of knowledge that are just waiting um, to share that knowledge with other people. And I, I, I really love our hobby. I feel like there's a ton of good people that have done a ton of good. Um, and I think our best years are ahead of us. I think some of the uh, breakthroughs that we're having and, and caring for animals and and our ability to pass that knowledge around much uh, easier than we could have a few decades ago with uh, now and um, how social media or the internet um, is working. I think it, it sets us up to be successful with a lot of animals um, and I'm excited about our future. Yeah, we definitely have, you know, the few Joe Exotic type people out there in, in, <laughs> in the reptile trade. But you're totally right. I think those are starting to become less and less because those people are just, you know, like you said, can I get, breed these animals and sell them for a dollar cheaper and try to make us, myself a buck? They're starting to, to fail in a way because it's not a healthy way to run a business. And I think yep. like someone like Ryan McVeigh, for example, who I'm sure you're familiar with, like he has just such a great you know, operation there with the Herpet College uh, Society and, and working with kids and getting people involved in science. And, and there is a lot of promise. Yep. And I think like even, you know, 20 years ago, to use Ryan as an example, 20 years ago, like his ability to have like a national platform and to inspire so many people is pretty limited. You know, just we didn't have the technology. And now for us, you know, the, just the stuff that he's done on, on helping people start uh, herp societies in their area. Like I, I'm, I'm guessing it's dozens of herp societies that have been started because he was able to say to lay out like this is how you do it and this is this is how you get set up. And so I think that like he's a good example of how technology has allowed us the opportunity to grow our hobby in ways that we couldn't have uh, 20 years ago. And and I think that's what makes me so optimistic about our future. We have good people like Ryan. Yeah, and I think many of us are 
sort of scientists or biologists at heart, and, and I, many of us wanted to go that direction, whether research or vet or, or zoologist or zookeeper, whatever it is, and so many of us haven't, don't have a career in that, in that area, but the industry will give you opportunities to work and, and do science. We can learn science. We can learn about how to you know, create breeding projects for animals that we don't know how to breed. And, and then conservation, like you're saying, is such a huge part. We can really take a ton of responsibility there and, and show people that this hobby is actually a net positive as a whole for the whole society. Even if you don't care about reptiles, we're doing really good work. Yep. Yeah, yeah exactly. And we're doing it in a way that's responsible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Josh, I really appreciate you you stopping by today. This was a great conversation. I know this will be a huge wealth of information for people because you have this amazing business mind in terms of creating a philosophy that operates well, and uh, it's clearly paying off, and, and that's why Josh's Frogs has really blown up. Can you let everybody know where they can find you online if they don't already know? Yeah, we're across most social pe- social media um, avenues, so it's just Josh's Frogs, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, any of that kind of stuff, or at joshesfrogs.com. And you guys ship nationwide across the states? Yeah, yeah we ship uh, nationwide, um, and then we do our supplies internationally as well, too. Oh, okay, yeah, so animals nationwide and, and supplies. Oh, so I could order some supplies from you up in Canada. Yep, yep, you sure can. Cool. All right, well, thank you very, uh, very much, Josh. This was a pleasure. All right, thank you. Have a good day. All right, that is the end of that episode. Josh, thank you so much for joining me. That was a really, really enlightening conversation, and I know the listeners will feel the exact same way about it. As I said in the intro, if you're someone that's wanting to step into the reptile space in a business capacity, then I think using Josh's story as a blueprint is the absolute way to go. Serve the community. Ask yourself how you can serve the reptile trade. Remember that we are not in competition with each other. Like he said, there's only 3% of America is keeping exotic animals. We can all grow that together. It doesn't come through fighting, it comes through supporting each other. And connecting with nature is such a key part to the hobby. And I want I mean that is one of the main philosophies of this show is 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 reminding people that the reason you keep the animals is to connect with the nature and to have that slice of nature in your home. And that's the fun part. That's why I always want to avoid getting into industrial size breeding because that absolutely pulls us away from nature. So connecting with nature is the point of the hobby, and I love the fact that that is their philosophy. I had no idea before talking to Josh that that was what he was going to say, so that fits so well within what I've been saying and what so many of you have been saying as well. So thank you so much for listening to this. I hope it was as enlightening for you as it was for me. Again, I just want to thank you guys for supporting the show every single week. If you do want to reach out to me, animalsathome.ca or animalsathomeca on Instagram, you can shoot me a DM there. And remember to share the content. If you are enjoying the show and you want to share it, please do share it on social media, Twitter, Instagram, doesn't matter. I always appreciate when I find uh, some of the listeners have shared the content. And thank you very much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this show. I always appreciate your support. You can find affiliate links in both the YouTube description as well as the show notes. And if you do end up picking up a piece of equipment, a small commission does come back to me, which helps support the show. I will talk to you guys next week.